The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 9, 6-7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince's Peace. Of the increase of his government and, pe- and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the, of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jackson, for reading that passage of scripture. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If I haven't met you before, my name is Paul Lim. I've been here since 2016, serving in the capacity as a scholar in residence, but also uh, teaching at Vanderbilt in the history of Christianity. So it's always a great delight to uh, bring the word of God for all of us. And as we do that, and if you're willing and able, let's pray one more time. Gracious God and our glorious Lord, our heavenly Father, we thank you for being who you are. Thank you for giving us your word that is infallible and never erring. And as we receive your word now, with the words that have been read twice, in fact, and as we think about these words and apply them to our hearts in this season of Advent, may you receive all glory and joy, and may we receive the direction and the meaning of our life journey here and now and forevermore. Amen. So what does Advent mean exactly? Someone asked me. And I said, it's just a few Sundays before Christmas is all. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, that's probably where many of us are. Advent is just a thing that's kind of, you know, starting to put our Christmas trees up and so on. Uh, The meaning of Advent throughout the history of the church has a twofold meaning twofold meaning. First was about the first coming of Christ. So every year, every time Advent is celebrated in different parts of the world, wherever the name of Christ is acknowledged as Lord and Savior, the first meaning had to do with the first coming of Christ, namely consummating and climaxing with Christmas, which has already occurred and salvation has been accomplished. But the other was about the second coming of Christ, which is a part that we don't hear a lot about. Advent season, we never hear about, uh, we hardly hear about the second coming of Christ. In fact, I'll dare say that we hardly ever hear at all about the second coming of Christ, which has not yet happened, although the power of the kingdom of Christ has already been unleashed. However, for different reasons, whether late modern expressive individualism or global tsunami of consumerism, I want to proclaim that many of us do not really understand the meaning of Advent, including myself. There are two reasons. One is cultural, the other is theological. Let me start with the cultural. So there is a Polish sociologist by the name of Zygmunt Bowman. That's a pretty cool name if your name starts Zygmunt Bowman. He wrote, among other books, he wrote this book that has been on my kind of a to-do list in terms of books to read again every other year. It's a book entitled, Does Ethics Have a Chance in a World of Consumers? 
Does ethics have a chance in a world of consumers? He, was, he grew up as a Polish Marxist and converted to Catholicism toward the end of his career. And then he said that conversion to Christianity has really kind of given him a new perspective to reevaluate and reassess all of his life journey, including his scholarly accomplishments. And this book is about that. He really kind of, does Christian ethics have a chance in a world of consumers? And I won't go into the details about this book, but I want to just share something that you and I can relate with very, very fundamentally. And this is Bauman's kind of main thrust. He says that, that in our world of consumerism, unless you're really mindful of whose you are and to which community you belong, you really have no chance, and ethics has no chance in a world of consumers. Well, remember Thanksgiving happened a couple of weeks ago? Right? I don't know about you, but in my email box, junk and otherwise, I got a lot of emails about, not necessarily about Thanksgiving, but about what? Black Friday, and then more recently I started getting emails about something else. Cyber Monday, that's right. So it's almost as if Thanksgiving just gave me a pretext to get lined up for Black Friday. Nowadays people may go in person, but a lot of times you can just do it on your mobile phone, right? On your iPhone or whatever device you might have. You can fulfill your duties of Black Friday, but ah, we're not done yet. We have Cyber Monday coming up. And so Christmas similarly, Advent season similarly is caught up, to be honest, between kind of our wrapping papers and what to put under the Christmas tree, all of which are laudable and understandable. Kudos to moms and dads who do it faithfully and delightfully every year. But that somehow, between the wrapping of papers and unwrapping of the gifts, I wonder where Advent goes. Is there anything beyond gifts and trees for Christmas or Advent season? How then should we celebrate and make the most of Advent season? So that's basically Zygmunt Bowman's thrust of argument. Does ethics have a chance in a world of consumers? He says, yes, it can, unless you're really anchored, if you're really anchored in a community of some community of people who believe that consumerism and global capitalism, though very helpful, is not the savior, is not the solution to our world's problems. I'd like to offer you three quick theological observations about the meaning of Advent. First, if Advent was only about the first coming of Christ, then we end up infantilizing the true meaning even of Christmas, let alone the Advent, and trivialize the meaning of the identity of Jesus as well. Secondly, the meaning of Advent has always been about waiting and anticipation because the New Testament church, as the bride of Jesus, has been waiting for the consummation of her ardent longing in the middle of toils and tribulations and the tumult of war. Three, the meaning of Advent has to have the elements of the past and the future compressed in the present. Based on the fact that the, Lord, the, the God of Israel did fulfill the promises regarding the first coming, as we have read twice. Did you know that? Did you know that we read Isaiah 9, 6, and we heard it read twice as part of our first Advent reading as well as the scripture reading? So because we know that that has happened in the coming of the Messiah, we can confidently hope, equally confidently hope, for the second coming. With the deep-seated hope that the true peace cannot be obtained until the return of the king, and true equity and inclusion, no matter who says, will remain a political and academic shame until Christ fulfills it for all when he wipes away all the tears and destroys death for his final turn. So with those things in mind, let's jump to today's text, Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7. From today's text, we glean three points. The first two are prohibitions, 
And the third, the final third is an exhortation. So the first point is, let's not isolate the text. Let's not isolate the text. Second point will be, let's not insult the Lord. Third point will be, let's invite this Prince of Peace. So it's three I words. Well, the, that letter, you can never forget I, right? It's a letter. So isolate, insult, and invite. So in other words, don't isolate, don't insult, and instead, let's invite. So let's jump to the first point. Let's not isolate the text. So we have read this, these two verses, beautiful verses, familiar text for many of you who have been Christians for quite some time. Let's remember then that Isaiah is regarded as the key prophetic text in Israel's scripture or our Old Testament, right? I mean, when people think about some of the most beautiful and sublime kind of Hebrew expressions, both in syntax and, and kind of phraseology, people, Old Testament scholars say, yeah, that's the book of Isaiah. Really, really beautiful language, and Isaiah was very erudite and learned and served in, the, in, in various capacities. So he, compared to some other prophets, was part of the sort of a, a ruling elite of his country. It was prophesying in both ways. So prophecy, many of us tend to think of it in one way, that is about telling about the future. But there's the other aspect that was much more common aspect to the role of a prophet. So there are two aspects. One is foretelling, that is telling about the future events that have yet to be unfolded. The other is forthtelling, and that is telling it like it is. And so speaking truth to power, right? So, so Isaiah spoke truth to power, in, for example, to King Ahaz. And we're going to see about King Ahaz in just a minute, but King Ahaz shows up in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Because King Ahaz is now his southern, his kingdom, southern kingdom of Judah. By this time, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah's prophetic ministry is primarily within the scope of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's telling King Ahaz, who's scared to death, because you know what's going on? It's because that there is a military alliance that has been formed that, that King Ahaz uh, hears about, and that is King Rezin of Aram, the Arameans, modern-day Syrians, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel. They from northern kingdom and Aram had formed an alliance. We read about that in chapter 7. And they, in fact, marched up right to the gate and tried to conquer Judah, but they couldn't do it. So if you're Ahaz, you're overmatched, you're overpowered and overwhelmed, what will you do? Ahaz wants to create his own military alliance or surrender, depending on how things are going to go. The Lord, in this context, tells him, tells Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet, that such an option is a highway to hell. Don't get on it. Don't go there. You don't want to do that. And the Lord, in order to speak very, very solemnly and seriously about how, you know, certain he was about, about that outcome, he says, look, I will give you a sign. All right? You may be familiar with this. So the Lord speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah. I will give you a sign so that you won't go into this military alliance or surrender because I'm going to back you up. I got your back. And, but King Ahaz, because of, you know, he wants to kind of couch his cowardice and lack of faith with this pious-sounding language, he says in 7.12, he says, I will not ask the Lord for a sign since I will not put the Lord to the test. So he's basically saying, I made up my mind, no matter what the Lord says, I ain't going to listen. 
And this is what I mean by not isolating the text. We need to understand 7, 8, and 9 together to get a picture of this beautiful picture of foretelling of the events that have yet to come in the, in the fulfillment of this kind of Davidic slash messianic dream that people have had. We want somebody to come, not Ahaz, but somebody who's going to be bigger and better and more faithful and more obedient and more peaceful and more just. So we come to verse 14 in chapter 7 of Isaiah. He says, the Lord says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And some of you may be able to fill in the rest of it. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll call him who? Emmanuel. You get it? You see, this prophecy that was given was actually the Lord saying, okay, since you're not going you know, to receive a sign and you're not going to be obedient to my warning, I will give you a sign. And the sign will be a child will be born and a virgin will be with child. Uh, and, and the word there, Alma, has been debated throughout the last two millennia between the Jews and the Christians and among Christians about who is the referent to this. Well, for the New Testament church and people who follow the ways of Jesus, they have this uh, canonical text called the Gospel of Matthew. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 22, it does something that was really remarkable in my, in my view and in, in your views as well. It says that it takes that text says, you know, what happened to the birth of Jesus was to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be, will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. All right, sounds wonderful and predicted. You say, yeah, of course, that's what you will hear every Christmas season or Advent season. But I want you to really think about this. I want you to really think about how did Matthew get this? How could, you know, if you actually Google the phrase, Google this phrase, scroll of Isaiah, manuscript of Isaiah, you will see that there are no chapter breakdowns. There are actually words that are just jumbled together, lined up together. And how did Matthew understand that this is actually, that verse is a fulfillment of our messianic longing? I can only say that it is the work of the Holy Spirit who has inspired, say, Matthew, the prophet Matthew, the apostle Matthew, and gave him that insight to see that all of Israel's longings will be fulfilled in a child, about whom we will say in just a little bit more. But so chapter 7, there is a prophecy uttered. In chapter 8, again, there are no chapter breakdowns in the original text, but we have created it to help us reading our reading practices. We read about the societal and cultural collapse. If you're in doubt, read chapter 8, you will see, which is highlighted by the fact that, wait for this, that the people of Judah are more frequently consulting mediums and spiritists. It says in chapter 8, believe it, don't believe it, read it, that'll be the chapter reading for your day, rather than consulting God's instruction. So imagine people in our church today spending more time on daily horoscopes or playing with Ouija board rather than reading scripture or daily devotionals, such as whatever your choice may be, Lectio Divina or whatever else. That's exactly what was going on. The Lord is lamenting the fact that my people are consulting the mediums and spiritists more than my instruction. And this is the kind of the situation that they're in. Then we come to chapter 9, today's text. So chapter 8 ends with a solemn prediction that if people persisted in their ways of not taking heed to my instruction, but rather going to the mediums and spiritists, so anything but God, they will inescapably end up with distress and darkness. 
In chapter 9, then, the Lord promises something. The Lord promises that the people walking in darkness and mired in distress will see the light and experience deliverance. But again, how is that lifting of darkness and distress to take place? It says, as we have read today, it'll take place through a birth of a child. Birth of a child. I don't know what that means, but all the moms in this room, expectant and past moms or current moms, you know what that feels like. Remember your childbirth. There's an expectation what this child will be. And remember the first mom written about in the Bible? What's her name? Eve, yes? Remember her first expectation, her first pregnancy? And you know, she names him, says, what? Cain means that with the deliverance of the Lord, I have delivered a child. With the help of the Lord, I have delivered a child. The, Lord, the, the name Cain actually means that this might be, she was expecting and hoping that this child will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. But you know what? The only head that he ends up crushing is tragically his own brother's head. So throughout human history, the birth of a child was marked both by anticipation and kind of dreams. But the, this field of dreams of pregnancy of many, many moms, regardless of age and culture and civilization, has also met with lots of broken dreams and unfulfilled dreams. Some pregnancies do not end up with child. Some pregnancies end up with children who are not going to listen to moms and dads, but do their own things. And, and so, but here in this text, in this text that we have read, it says, God's deliverance will come through a birth of a child. So in other words, this text is part of a longer and larger prophecy about what God of Israel was about to do with and in the lives of Isaiah, Ahaz, and all the peoples of Judah. God calls for fidelity to his instruction. God promises protection to the people of Judah. God warns that failure to keep close to the word of God will result in the loss of identity independence, eventually exile. Yet amid all the present or future experience of failed field of dreams, God comes through and says, you are still mine and I'm not done with you yet. And that's kind of the meaning of this particular prophecy. Don't isolate this text. You know, this, and we'll say more about this text, but also let's not isolate the text of your life and my life. Some of us might feel that this has been a very, very tough year for one reason or another. Some of us might feel like God knows, but does the most high care? So God knows, but does God really care about me and my story and my text? That's exactly the lament of the people of God in Israel in Isaiah's times. The Lord promises himself. His presence, his provision is what he promises. And he says, don't isolate this text. You need to see it in light of who I am and what I'm about to do and what I've done. Don't isolate your life story and text from the Lord's story. The text that says he's writing and he's writing in and through you right now. The story that he's texting, he is writing right now. You matter because you belong. With that in mind, let's go to the second point. Let's not insult the zeal of the Lord. In other words, each time you encounter the living word of God in scripture, you have to decide. Right now, you have a decision to make. All right, let me say that again. Right now, you have a decision to make. You, you have read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 read twice, not just once. You're hearing the word of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 explained in a bumbling way, but trying to be faithful way by a guy named Paul Lim, and, and, and you have a decision to make. The decision you have to make is, am I going to believe the written word of God? Am I going to believe this 
Because every time, every time you hear the word of God, you have a decision. Right now matters forever. Because these daily and hourly decisions we make in the power of the Holy Spirit will form habits of behavior and belief, right? They matter. Think of, you know, I've, I've seen a student, you know, I hadn't seen for about a year and a half, and he looked completely jacked. I said, what happened to you? And he said, you know, have you heard of this thing? I said, what thing? And what is that thing that people do? You know, it's like there was one on Belmont Boulevard. You know, the Iron Fit, what? CrossFit, thank you. The Iron Fit, okay. <laughs> CrossFit, that shows how unfit I am. I, I don't even get the name right, you know. Iron Fit, CrossFit, CrossFit, that's right, CrossFit. It's like, I've been doing CrossFit for about a year and a half, and look at me. I said, yeah, look at you. You know, it's like, so his behavior, he believed that by doing CrossFit or Iron Fit or whatever, he'll be better, he'll be more fit. Guess what? His belief that he actually put time into because he believed in this promise, and that belief actually then translated into behavior, and belief and behavior then resulted in a new being. Did you hear that? So you believe certainly, your behavior will change, and your being, your thing, and that's exactly right. Every time you hear the Word of God, whether preached by Todd Teller last Sunday or me or whoever is next weekend, every other week, you have a decision to make. God in God's sovereign mercy is allowing you to have that agency of deciding for God or not. Notice the promise in today's text. This child to be born will have the government on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That was verse 6. Identifying this Messianic and Davidic king, whose birth and eternal identity will be a wonder of wonders and mystery of mysteries. How can a child born be called mighty God. Did you wonder about that? I mean, a child and son will be given everlasting father, not just a child, but an everlasting father. Who on earth can fit that description? Here to me is the kicker in verse 7. Pay attention and take your phones out or Bibles out and read it again. In verse 7, it says, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. And the final sentence is this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the second point is, let's not insult the zeal of the Lord. The Lord is zealous about something. The Lord really is wanting to do something. The Lord is really wanting to accomplish something. And my point here is that let's not insult God by saying, okay, you're not going to accomplish this. Put bluntly, Isaiah is saying, you all think this sounds crazy. You all think that this child born will be the prince of peace and he'll be, you know, a mighty God and everlasting father. You all think that this is nuts because this ain't going to happen. So let me remind you of all that's going on to be going to be accomplished, this amazing and unprecedented feat is nothing less than my zeal. God is saying, look, you find that hardly credible, and I get it. I find, I, I, I see that you or your nation is under siege. You may not even have independence, you know, come 100 years, and you have every reason to be scared. You have every reason to be deeply in distress. You have every reason to be in darkness. You have every reason perhaps to be worried about your financial status and your national security, your personal kind of relationships, and all of these things. You feel utterly alone. You feel unheard. You feel uncared for. And God says, you know what? I know, and I see you. My zeal will accomplish this. In other words, the Lord Almighty will be focused and single-handedly devoted to this eventual triumph of the God of Israel. 
Let me say this once again. God is committed to the eventual restoration of God's shalom. Just as God created everything and God saw everything as God says, it was very, very good. That divine benediction that we heard in the first pages of Genesis, we'll, we, we will hear again in the final pages of Revelation chapter 22. And God will wipe away all of our tears. God will say, you are mine and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here we are together. Final closure and climax of relationships. So let me say this, let's not insult the Lord's zeal because just because it has not happened, let's not insult the Lord's zeal by saying it'll never happen. Just because I don't see it, let's not insult the Lord's zeal by saying it can't be true. A lot of us tend to think that. A lot of us begin and end with our own kind of intellectual capacity and if it doesn't make sense to me, it can't be true. Do not insult God. Do not insult Google. <laughs> Just because you don't understand it and you kind of put in the phrase and something pops up. I don't know about you, but before we can say in God we trust, I'm almost tempted to say in Google I trust. Because every time I Google something, you know, millions of results will be popped out within like 0.63 seconds. If I can trust Google, how can I not trust God? If I can trust the zeal of Google engineers, how can I not trust the engineering genius of the Lord of Israel? Here's where the French refugee pastor who lived outside of his country of birth for two-thirds of his life, his name familiar to many of us, John Calvin, had to say about seeing the Lord's kingdom when things hardly look like it. So you might say, Paul, you have no idea about my life. You have no idea about what's going on in this world. I cannot actually understand that the Lord's zeal will accomplish his promise. I get it. Calvin says this, we see it not with but through the eyes. Not with the eyes, but through the eyes. We see it not with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Yet you might ask, where can I actually see the Lord at work and ruling and reigning? Because you might say, and I might say, the Lord doesn't seem to be reigning. It doesn't look like the Lord is ruling with peace and righteousness because all I see around me is not that. So Calvin says, I will point to Wait for this. I'll point to the church. That's right. It says, I'll point to the church where Christ the King governs with perfect justice and righteousness. And he says, yet we're not there. We are and we're not there already and not yet. Christ has purchased the body of Christ, the church, with his blood infallibly and once and for all. So we belong and we are, not we will become, we are the bride of Jesus. We are the church, not that we are becoming the church, and yet there is, we are not there, yet the Lord has already claimed us for himself, beautifying us to be more and more like him, the tensional reality of already and not yet in our collective life together. So let's not insult the Lord for not believing this promise. I, I understand that you and I might not understand it all, so let God be God. Let him speak, let us listen, let him guide, let us follow. That leads me to my third and the final and related point. Let's invite this Prince of Peace. So don't isolate, don't insult, but instead let's invite this Prince of Peace. Peace is what we are lacking in a lot of ways. I bet you even right now, some of us don't have peace about a lot of things. I can tell you this, speaking of myself, I'm more peaceful when I'm done speaking because <laughs> when I'm speaking in front of a lot of you, which I've been doing since 1991, I'm still not at peace. I, I worry about that person is asleep. That person is walking out of here like, what's going on? I'm sucking as a speaker and a preacher. I better stop doing this. So I'm not at peace. 
When I'm done in my car listening to whether it is, you know, Bob's on a company's Charlo Suite or Metallica, whatever it is I listen to, I'm at peace. <laughs> so, in your life, it could be what's been going on in your private life or our communal life of the church. It could be because of your underemployment. It could be because of the material breakdowns or marital breakdowns, familial and relational losses and fissures that we experience. I realize that for some people, holiday season is a season of pain. Thanksgiving and Christmas are seasons of deep anguish and pain. You might say, surely you say that, preacher, but how do you really know? I tell you why. That's because for me, Thanksgiving and Christmas, especially Christmas, is a season of deep loneliness. No immediate family in this country for me means that, that Christmas has always been very small. My parents, uh, who immigrated to uh, America in nine, nine, uh, from South Korea in 1982, left the country in 2008, retired to South Korea. I felt abandoned by my parents. I begged my mom and dad, please stay in Nashville. And they said, you have your family, we're going to be going. And it wasn't anything crueler, but just... just and that, I think, was the best decision for mom and dad. Uh, but left, that left me and my wife and our son all by ourselves. I don't know whether my son or my wife uh, kind of echoes that, but every Christmas, it's been a really hard season. And I also came to realize that a lot of you also have hard times during Christmas. Christmas can be a time of loneliness. Christmas can be a time of desiring something better and, and not having it. I'm not just talking about the presents you had told your mom and dad to get, you know, high school students, or, but it's much deeper than that. So especially during this season, Advent season of 2023, I, not just you, need to invite the Prince of Peace into my life. Globally speaking, I was encouraged, to, um, encouraged about the news of the truce ne negotiations, were you not? I mean, when you, hearing, when you heard about the ceasefire, I was really pumped. I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. And yet, very recently, just 13 hours ago, there is a resuming of, of aerial bombardment on Gaza. So I am discouraged. All the attacks that are based on hatred and stemming from religion and ethnicity or whatever else, that's the opposite of shalom. And yet, the Bible declares for us that he is and will be called the Prince of Peace. He accomplished that peace by his own violent death, by execution, by surrendering himself to the will of the Father, by surrendering himself to be crucified in the Roman hands. This lamb who looked as if he was slain became, becomes the only one who can open the scroll of human history as Revelation chapter five talks about it so poignantly. We're looking for that Prince of Peace to return. And that to me is one of the key meanings of Advent. Let me finish with this uh, illustration. So, when I was in college, one of the things that I did was I became a DJ. And, uh, you know, someone said, hey, you have a good voice to be a DJ? You be a DJ. I said, okay, how much does it pay? And I did it, and I was loved being that. So every time I speak, I relate to some of the things that I'm talking about with song lyrics. So the song for today is U2's Where the Streets Have No Name. Do you, how many of you know that song, Where the Streets Have No Name? Yeah, that is one of my favorite songs of all time. Here's why. Theologically, this is one of the best explanations of this eschatological glory that we have yet to see for ourselves. Bono, when he wrote this song, said, you know what? In, in, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, 
you know, you can go to Belfast and you can tell what kind of religion that person might be, what kind of socioeconomic background they, they might be by looking at the street names. So street names have become reasons of division and discrimination and disenfranchisement. So Bono says, you know, they wrote this song and said, I want to go where the streets have no name. Don't you? Don't you want to go somewhere where you're not going to be judged based on how much you make or how little you are, how tall you are, how smart you are, who you're married to, who you're sitting next to, who you eat with, right? Where the streets have no name. And Bono says, you know what? That's what our ideal is. And you know what? That's my ideal. I'm waiting for the Prince of Peace who, because of his work, streets will have no name. Your identity, poor, rich, whatever race, cultural background, none of it matters. And all of it matters at the same time. God has redeemed you precisely based on who you are. You know what? You're unique. You're uniquely you. The, your DNA com combination is not repli replicable to anybody else. That means God knows you individually. You're wonderfully and fearfully made. And God says, I'm doing, making all things on you so that when we get there, streets will have no name. Based on the street names, you cannot tell. That's not only true in Belfast, but also true in Antioch and Belmede and Bellevue, right? And then North Dakota as it is in North Korea. It's a universal ubiquitous phenomenon where based on street names, we make that a rule of idea of our badge of honor. Where the streets have no name. I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. I want to feel sunlight on my face. I see that dust cloud disappear without a trace. I want to take shelter from the poison rain where the streets have no name. Where the streets have no name, where the streets have no name. We're still running, building, then burning down love, burning down love. And when I go there, I go there with you, that's all I can do. So dearly beloved, I want you to reach out and touch the flame of the, of the Prince of Peace. That the only hope that you and I have during this Advent season is not your bank account. The only hope that you and I have during this Advent season is not to be lodging an individual person, human person, priest, pastor, presidents, or politicians, or whoever, right? No, the only hope that I have the only hope you should have is to be found on this Prince of Peace who says, I promise you myself, I will be with you, I am with you, you are forever mine, both now and forevermore. Life is weird, but God is good, as my friend reminded me not too long ago. Life is weird, but God is good. Shall we pray? Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. As we contemplate the reality of our own promises, we break them. Although we mean not to break them, we fail and falter in many ways, and yet your promise is the same. That you tell us, do not isolate your life's text. Do not insult me by not believing my promise. Instead, invite me to your life. Invite me to come and take over. Invite me and see who I am and what I can do in you and through you. Lord, may we believe these things as we begin this Advent season of deep longing. Longing not only for the Christmas presence, but for the presence of the second coming of Jesus himself. In your name we pray. Amen.